0: Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. with a capital B, capital T, and a capital U-K, or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. I've got a story for you today that I came across quite by accident. As I was going around Vale Cemetery on a sunny Sunday afternoon, if you've ever been there yourself, you'll know what a relaxing and lovely place it is. And as I was walking around, I noticed a particular inscription that mentioned someone in the story. So when I got home, I went straight to do the research, and I came across an event that happened in March nineteen o two, that probably most people in Bristol have never even heard of. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Arnes Vale. It's close to the heart of the city of Bristol. And is internationally recognized as one of Britain's best examples of a Victorian garden cemetery. Arnes Vale was established in 1837 with its first burial in 1839. The cemetery followed a joint stock model funded by shareholders. It was laid out as an Arcadian landscape with buildings by Charles Underwood. It is listed grade two on the Historic Register of Parks and Gardens. There are quite a few people of note buried there, including a friend of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, called Roland Brotherhood, as well as an educational and social reformer, Mary Carpenter. Our story today takes place in the year 1902. And, as you can imagine, many things were going on in history that being been made on a daily basis. For example, on the 7th of March, Second Boer War, the South African Boers win their last battle over British forces, with the capture of British General and 200 of his men. And then, just over a month later, on the 28th of April, Manchester United Football Club were formed by John Henry Davis, in a name change from Newton Heath the former name of the Football League Second Division Club that he had recently saved from going out of business. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, I did a story about Clara Butt. Well, on the 2nd of June in 1902, song Land of Hope and Glory, with the music of Edward Elgar and the lyrics of A.C. Benson, receives its first London premiere, sung by Clara Butt. Now, on the 9th of August... Edward VII and Alexandra had their coronation at Westminster Abbey by Archbishop Frederick Temple. Albert Edward takes the style Edward VII, King of the United Kingdom and the British Dominions and Emperor of India. And on the 30th of December that year, Scott, Shackleton and Wilson reached the furthest southern point reached so far by man south of 82 degrees south. Now of all these going on in the background, it was 5pm in a soaps work in Broad Plain in Bristol, England, on the 18th of March 1902, and it was time to go home. It had been a very bitty Tuesday, and all the workers were happy to go home or go to the local pub beforehand. The premises were left in the safe hands of the night watchman, whose duty it was to periodically make an inspection of the buildings. There was also a smaller night shift there as well. It was two hours later whilst doing his rounds that night watchman's life would change forever when he looked up at the top floor of a four-story building and noticed a faint glow in one of the windows. This was about 7 p.m. and the fire was breaking out in the pan building of the soapworks in Old Bread Street, St. Philip's, Bristol. Incidentally, it was in the newest part of the works, having been built in 1881. If it had been the older buildings, then the damage would have been much worse, but this building was constructed using the most modern, fireproof, and fire resisting techniques of the time. This building was mainly constructed using stone and metal, and not much wood. The top floor of the main building housed the grease refining department, and the floor was below. various stages of soap production and as the night watchman noticed the flames they very quickly spread burning through the roof eating away until it eventually gave way turning the building into what one newspaper called a magnificent yet awful cauldron of fire and once the roof was gone the flames started on the lower floors until some of the front of the building fell on itself causing a tremendous and terrifying noise And now, how about having our word of the week? This word goes way, way back in time. Actually, it's Middle English, which is a form of English language spoken after the Norman conquest until the late 15th century. English underwent distinct variations and developments following the Old English period. Middle English was spoken as being from 1150 to the 1500s. This word is also very good for Star Wars fans, as it's Sith, which back then meant since. In our story, the front part of the Soapworks building fell into itself. And 20 minutes later, another part of the same wall fell onto the stamping room. Which was used to store large amounts of wood and box making materials this unfortunately was where the fatality occurred it was lucky for some that the walls fell inwards as loss of life would have been greater and the rubble helped quell the ever-increasing flames when the wall crashed onto the stamping room the crowds gave an audible gasp and moved as one in shock when the smoke and flames had parted it was obvious that the part of the wall on the Ross Street side of the works had collapsed onto a smaller building. When the wall fell, James Knight and a colleague, Mr W. M. Edwards, one of the directors of the company, were hurriedly trying to clear some flammable material out of the building. Throughout the day, the Great Fire was the main topic of conversation locally, and was generally described as the most ferocious that had been seen in Bristol for many years. Thousands of people flocked from all over the city to witness the destruction, and the police found it difficult to cope with them. The spectators filled the streets, making it difficult for the fire engines to get to the blaze. It's believed that there were about 5,000 people crammed into the small side streets, surrounding the blaze, with yet more further away. The reflections of the flames cast in the sky were seen many miles away from Bristol. People travelling from South Wales saw the light soon after emerging from the Seventh Tunnel. It was even visible from a train in Trowbridge, twenty-one miles away. All day and throughout the night, firemen were frantically trying to suppress the flames on the smouldering ruins and thousands of sightseers visited the Broad Plain area to witness these historic events for themselves. Mr Edwards, who was with James in the room when the wolf came crashing down, stumbled out of the rubble with what looked like a serious head wound. And as soon as it became generally known that James Knight was buried beneath the debris, there was a rush of volunteers to form a search party. A glance at the immense amount of masonry and rubbish that had fallen at once dispelled all hope that he had not been killed. But his comrades were nonetheless eager to start operations, although the task of clearing away some 30 tonnes of material was going to be a major operation under the conditions. The wall had fallen at 9pm, but it was not until just before midnight that any organised attempt at a search was made possible. But at that time, Mr. F. Rogers, a member of the firm, gathered together a group of some 40 or 50 men who at once set to work. This wasn't going to be an easy task and was one that was extremely dangerous, especially when you realise that the fall of a party wall and two stacks was expected by the brigade. Had that happened, the workers would, without doubt, have been buried alive. If you do one thing after this show, it's get in touch with me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. And it's very, very easy. You can catch me on either Twitter or Facebook using BacktrackerUK with a capital B and a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk And I will try to get in touch with you and reply. Actually, thinking about it, there is something that you could do to help me. If you know of a war grave in your local cemetery, if you could take a photo and send it to me, that would be brilliant, as I'm trying to collate them all together uh, for a show I'm planning on doing later this year. In fact, only today I was um, doing some research for a show that I'm going to do in the future... And I came across a graveyard that I hadn't been in and I spent a good hour in there trying to find any war-related graves that I could photograph. I got chatting to some people who were down there volunteering to clear away the graveyard and had quite the nice time, you know, at a reasonably social distance. And now let us continue our story about the night of the fire at the soapworks. There were about 40 or 50 men desperately looking for James Knight with the thinnest hope that he might be alive. And all the while whilst they were looking there were numerous slight falls of masonry and rubble. But happily no accidents happened and the work went as quickly as possible. It was a picturesque and yet solemn scene the men working with pick and shovel at the huge mass of ruins. The spot being illuminated by numerous lamps and of course the dull red glow of the flames overhead. A loud hissing of tonnes of water were poured onto the building and the earnest conversation of the searchers as they fiercely explored the debris. Hot coffee was supplied to them at intervals and still they struggled on, seemingly without any success, until about 2.15pm. Eyes tired from constant searching as well as the ash and smoke that made the hot air almost unbearable. One of the men moved some rubble aside and found a hand reaching out from the fallen masonry. James had been lying beneath a solid block of cemented brickwork that must have weighed nearly 15 tonnes. It is thought his death was instantaneous. This block had to be broken away piece by piece, and when this huge task was successfully accomplished, the position in which Knight was lying became apparent. He had evidently been flung backwards when the wall collapsed. He was lying on his back, with his arms up to shield his head. With some sheets of corrugated iron on him, kept down by a piece of C4 14-inch angle iron, which in its turn was jammed down beneath several tonnes of debris. The efforts of the searchers then moved on to removing all this, but at six o'clock, the wall and stacks mentioned earlier looked so dangerous that work was temporarily stopped. An ugly crack showed itself in the brickwork of the chimney, while numerous small falls from the walls seemed to suggest a general collapse was inevitable. The deceased man's comrades, however, were unwilling to relinquish their dangerous work, and when volunteers were asked to go in and cut the angled iron. There were 20 times as many responses as were needed, although the tasks involved a fearful risk. Three men named Tomlinson, Williams and Hobbs were selected and practically taking their lives into their hands, set to work with hammers and chisels, two relieving each other of the cutting process and the third anxiously watching the tottering walls. For over an hour, the three worked their noble task and at ten minutes past seven, Succeeded in breaking through the angle iron. It was not until a quarter to eight that the body was freed and taken on the police stretcher to Trinity Road Mortuary. It, it's only fair and right to say that the behaviour of the smaller rescue party was exemplary. They never floundered and refused to give up, determined to get their friend out as quickly as possible. They weren't going to surrender until their efforts were successful and they found James Any man on the premises would have gladly helped the three men who were selected for the task of removing the obstructions. It is said that the police arrangements at the time were excellent, inspectors Pope and Maddox being in command. No unauthorised persons were allowed on the premises, so that the work of the exploring party might not be interfered with. But a good-sized crowd remained beyond the cordons, eager to learn about the progress, and when the sad procession at last emerged, Old Broad Street was crowded with a sympathetic gathering, who were strangely quiet in the presence of death. James's sister was there during the whole event, a tearful witness to the events unfolding, watching, waiting and hoping. If you enjoy historical fiction and you like theatre, then you'll love The Queen's Head by Edward Marston. The main character is a man called Nicholas Bracewell, the company's bookholder. And when I mean company, I mean a theatre company. And his job is to keep everything going and ticking along. Throw in a murder conspiracy, the Spanish Armada, and you have got quite an entertaining book. In fact, it's part of a series of books. And as someone who loves the theatre, the historical attention to detail is fascinating. I just love it. I enjoyed the storyline and I've been reading some other books in the series, so not bad. I read in the news the other day that a recent survey was conducted to study the effect alcohol has on walking. The results were staggering. Let me tell you a bit more about James Knight, the poor man who died in that fire. James Knight Jr. was born the 10th of June, 1866, making him 36 years old when he died. He lived in Fleetwood, Redcatch Lane in Knoll. He was married to Agnes from Westminster in London and had a family of five children, Violet, who was 11, Alec, 8, Hilda, 6, Herbert, 5, and three-year-old Arnold. His father died when James was only two years old, and so he was raised with two elder siblings by their mother, Jane, who was a charwoman in Bedminster. He had started at the company as an office boy in the employment of Mr. Thomas, and had worked his way up to the most responsible position of mercantile clerk, where he was respected by everyone who worked with him. It was absolutely amazing how much his death affected his fellow workmen, many of those who had worked bravely and nobly all through that terrible night, breaking down in tears when the bruised and battered body of James was taken from the ruins at last. James's funeral was held at Arnest Vale Cemetery in Bristol on the 24th of March and was attended by thousands all of whom were eager to see the proceedings and witness the events. James's oldest son, Alec James, who, remember, was only eight at the time of his father's death, went on to become an acting corporal in the Royal Marine Light Infantry. He was killed in action on the 23rd of March 1918 in France. And James's second eldest son, Herbert William Knight, joined the Royal Navy in 1913. A year later, on the 5th of December 1914, he was officially reported as a prisoner of war after Operation Antwerp and was sent to Doberitz camp in Germany. Doberitz was situated in the west of Berlin and had a mixture of British French and Russian internees. Towards the end of the war, conditions in the camp became extremely harsh and some of the prisoners survived by eating snow and potato peelings. Fortunately for Herbert, he was only there for a month and was repatriated on the 7th of January 1919. Later, Herbert would go on to marry Linda Hawkes Pippin in September 1919 in Bristol, and they had a daughter, Linda, in 1920. And fortunately she died in 1926, aged only six years old. In the days that followed the fire, the local newspapers received lots of letters. One in particular was from the directors of the soap factory giving thanks to all those that helped contain the fire and limit the damage, especially to other buildings nearby. Because it is worth mentioning that there was a distillery right next door and if that had gone up, it would have been an even bigger disaster. Another letter of note goes as follows. I was going in a tram to Knoll this morning when the conversation turned on the big fire I replied to a question of a gentleman opposite that the body of the missing man had been found, that he was Mr. Knight of Redcatch Lane, when my friend said he was very sorry to hear it, for he knew him well, and a good fellow he was. What sort of man was he? Do I know him? I asked. The quivering voice of little girl opposite stalled us. He was my father, the child scarcely old enough to realise her loss was taking home what information she had gathered to a distracted mother. I inquired how many children her father left. Five. And are you the youngest? No, I am the oldest, was the tearful reply. Was he employed at the works at night? No, he was at home last night and heard of the fire and went down to see if he could help. He went to see if he could help his employers in a dire emergency and never returned, sacrificed his life in doing his duty. The time may come when the little maid will say with well-deserved pride, he was my father. But meantime, what about the widow and five children under the age of 11? The official report was given by Inspector Gotts, the Chief Officer of the Fire Brigade. He went on to say, At 7.29am on 18th of March 1902, a call was received from Mrs Thomas Soapworks saying that there was a fire on the premises. Chief Constable Cann was very early on the scene and he could see the flames from his house. He instantly jumped into action, immediately ordering the fire department, Sergeants James and Hunt, as well as members of the brigade, went out within minutes with the tender and the steam fire engine called Cabot, with Chief Fire Officer Gotts following. Another steam engine from St George with Sergeant Harrison in charge, the fireboat from Princes Street Bridge and all available help were quickly sent for. The brigade arrived in two minutes and found that the large building was well alight and the roof had already collapsed in on itself. The firm's private fire brigade was already at work with hydrants and fire baskets. The brigade immediately got to work, starting uptown standpipes, and when the steam fire engines arrived as well as the fireboat, they all progressed their attack on the ferocious flames. It's worth noting that several of the surrounding buildings contained highly flammable substances. The Bristol Distillery Company were nearby, and their buildings contained not only large amounts of spirits but also dried malt. Firemen worked hard to ensure that these buildings didn't catch fire. They even climbed onto the roof and stamped out sparks or embers, which were blown by the wind from the burning building. Danger of the fire spreading any further were dispelled by about 11pm, and just after 12am, the fireboat and steamers returned to their stations. Most of the exhausted firemen started to return to their bases by about 10am. There was only four left, as well as several members of the firm's brigade. All were still working on keeping the fire from starting again. This would take several days, due to the strength of the flames. A huge investigation was started immediately, and the police had someone in custody very quickly. And now for a little bit of history about the soapworks. The firm was founded in 1825 in a yard of the old Red Lion pub in Redcliffe Street. It's worth bearing in mind that the main ingredients in soap back then were highly flammable and explosive. The tallow used by the company came in large amounts from Australia, South America and the United States, as well as smaller quantities from local butchers. In 1833 they united with Capper and Stone from Queen Street and they started to make candles. In 1841, Fripp and Co. were amalgamated into the firm and the whole company moved to larger premises on Broad Plain. The building had a unique chimney, said to be a copy of the Tower of Palazzo Fescio, Town Hall of Florence, Italy, and near that, carved into the wall, was a figure carved in stone of the winged bull Ninava, the company's well-known trademark. The site is now home to the department store, Gardiner Haskins. Some of the original building still remains. I hope you found that story interesting. I did, because I've been to Gardiner Haskins before and I didn't realise the history of the area. I never even knew there was a soapworks down there before. And like I said earlier, this whole story came about when I discovered the grave of James Knight in Arnesville Cemetery in Bristol. If you know of a grave near you that has an epitaph that really intrigues you, why don't you send me a picture? Then I can have a look and see if I come up with anything. That's exactly what Graham Willoughby of Mangotsfield has done. He got in touch with me about a grave you found recently of a man who died a violent death in Ireland. So I'm looking into that story, Graham, and I'll get back to you when I find something. On the 13th of July in 1837, Queen Victoria became the first British monarch to live at Buckingham Palace. The 15th of July is St. Swithin's Day. Now, St. Swithin was an English monk who became Bishop of Winchester in 852 and died 10 years later. According to popular belief, at his own request, he wanted to be buried in the churchyard so that his grave would be watered by rain and trodden by the feet of passers-by. On the 15th of July, 971, his remains were moved to a more appropriate resting place inside the cathedral an operation that was allegedly disrupted by heavy rain, which continued for 40 days thereafter. This story is the basis of the meteorological prediction that a wet or dry since Witham's Day will be followed by 40 days of rain or fair weather, respectively, a long-range forecast that has proved far from accurate over the years. And for my last fact, on July 17th, 1959, US jazz singer Billie Holiday passed away This tune that you can hear in the background right now and that has been playing throughout the story is by a band called Really Jiggered Now you can find out more about them at their website which is reallyjiggered.com And one day in the near future I'm hoping to go see them live been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.